0: Hi, welcome to the Aerospace Industries Association of Canada's podcast. It's hosted by me, Mike Mueller, Senior Vice President of AIAC. In each podcast, we will be exploring topics of interest to our sector by interviewing leaders in both the Canadian and international aerospace industry and relevant thought leaders in order to provide timely perspective and context in the world of aerospace in Canada. AIC is committed to serving its members by being the bridge between industry and the government, while bringing industry together, acting as its voice. Hope you enjoyed the pod. Thank you all for participating or listening today. My name is Mike Mueller, Senior Vice President at AIC. Throughout this COVID-19 crisis, we are working day in and day out to connect the industry and be your voice. If you haven't already, please make sure to sign up to our news. You can use email. Check out the AIC.ca website, and if you have an issue, please let us know. We want to be your concierge service, and we've seen some success doing that during this time. Before I introduce our partners from Roland Berger, allow me to welcome those officials from the various federal departments, including GAC, ICED, d and CCC, and those I've missed. We want to welcome you. As we are all aware, the industry is going through quite the challenge at the moment. We have members in every region of the country trying to manage their businesses under extreme challenges. Challenges that require a concerted effort by both industry and government to manage. Our aerospace industry in Canada is one that has been nurtured by consecutive governments for the past 80 years. As stated in the foreword of our Vision 2025 report, 80 years ago, Canada's decision makers committed to making the country a global leader in aerospace. They were visionaries. The time has come for us to renew that commitment. I would say that that quote from our Vision 2025 chair, the Honourable Jean Charest, was visionary in itself as who would have known that a short few months after the release of the report, we would find ourselves here today in this crisis. It would be an understatement to say that the industry is frustrated. The aerospace, defense and space industries in Canada are strategically important sectors for Canada, contributing to national security and economic prosperity. Our industry in Canada provides well-paying jobs to 250,000 Canadians, delivering sustainable growth in every region of the country. Maintaining and building on Canada's strengths in our sector will help boost productivity across the entire country and make sure Canada remains one of the best places in the world to innovate, do business and create jobs. As an industry association, we have worked with the very best to bring the latest information to both industry and decision-makers in government. COVID-19 has been economically devastating to all parts of Canada and the world's economy, but we see that it has impacted some sectors, such as ours, more dramatically than others. We see governments around the world investing and promoting their industries. We need the same if we are to remain globally competitive. I'm pleased to introduce Rahul Gangal from Roland Berger, who will provide an overview of the global situation and where Canada stands. Roland Berger and others have been outstanding partners before and throughout this crisis. Thank you, Rahul, for all you've done and over to you. We hope you enjoy this webinar.
1: Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure being here. We had conducted our first webinar around five weeks ago. And so we felt in an environment as fluid as this, it's time to revisit the theme and look at what other countries are doing and what Canada should consider doing if it has to safeguard its interests in a sector as strategic as aerospace and defense. With me today are two of my senior colleagues who represent the entire spectrum of activities from all over the world. We have Manfred Harder. Manfred is the co-lead for the aerospace defense practice for Rollenburger globally, based out of Germany. Spends a lot of time in Europe, continental Europe, and also in Asia. has also been supporting the AIAC in Canada. Also joining him is Robert Thompson, the Partner and Head for Aerospace Defense in the UK, has been in, active in the sector for over 25 years, also has significant exposure to the region, Europe, North America, as well as Middle East. So between the three of us, I think we cover reasonable spectrum to pre- provide you a glimpse of what's happening all over the world. The presentation will have two parts to it. The first part will talk about what's happening and what's the impact of the scenario from all over the region. This would be a follow-on of the presentation that we made last time, so you, you would get a little more updated view on what's happening. But The more important piece that we would end up focusing on is how other governments are assisting the national aerospace industries and what Canada can learn from it. So over to you, Robert, to take us through the first section on. COVID-19 and its impact around the world.
2: Right. So I was going to begin by just saying that current crisis, COVID-19 crisis, seems to be driven by a perfect storm of contributing factors when compared against previous air travel shocks. If we look back in time to the first oil shock, 73-74, 1980s, first Gulf War, All of those were uh, economic downturns. And since some of those were associated with conflict, a fear of travel. There was definitely a fear of travel post 9-11, which um, I certainly felt along with others. And then the financial crisis of 2008-9 came associated with a big economic downturn. When we look into SARS, we can see that there was a genuine health risk in SARS, travel restrictions imposed. But that was only on a regional level. And then when we look at COVID-19, we can see a a big economic downturn, a fear of travel, a genuine health risk, and travel restrictions, and all of the basis. So we seem to have the worst of all different worlds for COVID-19 and the crisis which currently faces us. If we then go to the next page, we can see the way in which we've been analysing this current crisis from left to right across this page, first of all, working with our healthcare teams, looking at the progression of the virus around the world, then into the mitigating actions which governments, companies, and individuals have been taking. That then has a knock-on effect with the demand for air travel, which impacts the aviation industry, and then finally, at the end of the line, the aerospace industry, impacted both through the drop in MRO and in aircraft production. As I said, we've been looking at this globally across Rollenberger with our healthcare teams looking at the virus and with our aviation teams looking at the impact on the aviation industry. But what I was going to talk about today was really focusing towards the right-hand side of the page. And Rahul's already ahead of me. If we go to the next page and look at the impact on passenger volumes, we can see that passenger volumes in China are currently on the rise. They fell very sharply in early February, immediately after Chinese New Year, and were down 93% at the low point, and since then have been gradually recovering, such that at the end of last week, passenger volumes in China were only down about 40% compared to the previous year. If we then look at the US and Europe, you can see both fell roughly the same sort of time from early March onwards. US has begun to recover, such that the U.S. Um, passenger volumes are only down a mere 85%, a disaster in any other way, but slightly recovering from earlier, earlier months or earlier weeks. And an interesting perspective in the U.S. in that we see airlines like Southwest are flying much more capacity at the moment than some of the, the mainline carriers like Delta and United. And this fits in with one of our theories, which is that the low-cost airlines are going to be some of the bigger beneficiaries from this crisis in the airline world. They don't rely on long-haul for any of their profits, and they don't have the feed and defeed feed which some of the long-haul carriers have around their hubs. So in the US, down a mere 85%, and in Europe, down 98% at the moment in terms of passenger volumes. That said, we do see the beginnings (laughs) of Europe. EasyJet, for instance, has started to fly its schedule once again as from today, initially only domestic, domestic UK and some domestic France, domestic Germany as well. But we're gradually beginning to see the recovery in air traffic in Europe. That said, we're still down something like 65, 66% overall compared to this time last year. And with that, I hand over to Manfred to talk about the new normal.
3: Yeah, thank you, Robert. I mean, the good news is air yeah, traffic is starting to recover. Uh, but the real question is what the future will bear for us. Uh, and our analysis have shown that really two indicators is what will matter uh, when it comes to assessing the future market prospects. And uh, the first one is what we call the level of new normal in terms of passenger travel, uh, and the question here really is, will we re- be returning after COVID to the same level of passenger traffic as before, or will it be, for example, a lower? And uh, the second question, really, what will the growth rate be after having reached a new normal? Will it be the uh, typical 4.6 compounded annual growth rate we had before the crisis, or do we have to expect to see lower growth? And we have conducted a driver analysis to see which were the factors that would actually impact those two key indicators. Yeah. Some of them which are the useless aspects like economic growth like uh, yield or ticket prices uh, some which are also known but which uh, may uh, see quite some uh, some changes uh, through the crisis like uh, the level of globalization for example or environmental concerns and last but not least and this makes a little bit more difficult to predict there are some new factors coming in uh, which are actually being created by the crisis for example What is the airline or the airport experience going to be like in the future when you have to sort of board a plane in large numbers, wearing a mask? And when you have to go through additional safety checks at the airport, what will this mean in terms of propensity of people to fly? So I think two things can be said. One, a lot lot of uncertainty what is going to happen. But two, it clearly appears already, even looking at those factors, that things will not return to normal that quickly that the normal will be at a lower level and that the growth thereafter is probably at least in the, in the next couple of months or years not going to reach the growth levels we had before. Too many obstacles in the way for that. Having said that, and if we move on to the next page, we have plugged this into uh, scenarios, which I believe you have seen already because they were developed in early April. We've continued to work on them. And what is clear already, the sort of v curve type scenario, the scenario one, which we called rebound at the time, is already completely unrealistic. No way that we will see a return to normal before the end of this year. It will take longer. But the current consensus really is somewhere between scenario two and scenario three. If you look at the Yatra figures, for example, and the trend is really going towards scenario three. That is why we have taken a deeper look at scenario three, and we have also played around with assumptions regarding retirements. And the question is, will retirements, especially for wide-body aircraft, happen at the same uh, kind of default rate we had seen before the crisis? Or could they be seen a more accelerated retirement? And this all is at the level of passenger traffic. Uh, what really matters now is what does it mean for our industry? And this is the analysis you will see on the following page. We basically plugged in the, the figures and the scenarios from our passenger travel or passenger traffic model into the aircraft production model. And where you, roughly speaking, see the following. We expected, before the crisis, to deliver 17,500 aircraft in the next eight years, 2020 to 2028. 20, you know? If scenario two would come to pass, this would go down to a little bit more than 13,000, almost 25% less than anticipated before the crisis. If scenario B, the uh, 3B, which is basically the scenario three uh, with four retirements were to happen, this would almost be halved. Uh, and here you actually see the effect of uh, of, of implementing an early retirement policy, uh, which basically means some of the airplane, especially the wide-body air airplane, which are currently parked somewhere, will never return into service, and others will be replaced earlier. Uh. If that were were to happen, this would have a significant impact on an otherwise quite dire picture. Uh, and I think that's take up later when we discuss about government measure. Now, we also looked at what this means for MRO, and uh, Robert is going to give us a shout about that.
2: Thank you. We looked at this in 2019, where we estimated total spending on MRO, so airframe engine and component, for large commercial aircraft was $76 billion. And our forecast for this year, prior to the current crisis, was that would increase by 5%, mostly volume, little bit of price increase. Our expectation now is that MRO spending will decrease by between something like 50 and 70%, depending on which of these scenarios which Manfred referred to actually transpires. And at the moment, we're feeling it's more like scenario three than scenario two. MRO spending obviously decreases as soon as aircraft start to ground aircraft, and they ground uh, older older aircraft, which typically have higher operating costs, primarily maintenance and fuel. And also airlines ground aircraft as soon as maintenance events become due and the cash costs of those maintenance events looms large on the horizon. Those sorts of maintenance events would be heavy airframe checks or, or indeed engine overhauls. So we see all three segments of the MRO market being impacted by the, by the downturn. So it will certainly hit airframe, engine and components. And areas like engine hit also by green time effects and in addition by USM as older engines get bought and broken up for spares and parted out. So we see quite a tough time in the aftermarket over the next 12 to 18 months. And with that, i uh, hand back to Manfred to talk about how companies can cope with the current crisis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what this really means is that the industry will have to contract at least in the midterm by anywhere between 30 and 50 percent. This is very clear now. It has not really been that clear when we talked uh, last time in April. Uh, but I think, so. I think things have come a lot clearer now with the OEMs announcing the future rates. And with a consensus sort of settling in about what this means for air traffic, I mean, basically, if I talk to airline customers today, uh, a few of them uh, tell me that it will uh, take shorter than uh, 23 or 24 for things to recover to a pre-crisis level. Uh, so this does means with the aerospace manufacturing industry, there will no not be any a natural or real demand uh, for, for growth aircraft in the coming years, so mainly uh, replacement demand. And this one could also be pushed. And that means that in, in, in the short to midterm, the industry will have to contract by anywhere between 30 to 50%, depending a little bit in which segment you are, depending on what uh, what product uh, program and client structure you have, this may vary a little bit to the upside or to the downside. This means we are facing an unprecedented uh, crisis, which who are currently uh, uh, in, in response positions have not much experience in terms of having managed that kind of crisis before they do realize that it is not simply about going back to, say, 2015 levels before the ramp-up where we had, I would say, similar capacity. Why? Because since everybody has to go down uh, 30 to 50%, uh, there's going to be a huge, huge competition out there. And uh, this basically means in the end, everybody will need to find uh, his or her new right to play in a market which uh, is going to fundamentally change uh, uh, its face. Yeah. This means that today we're seeing two things, really. Uh, We are seeing companies putting in place, I would say, so-called immediate or no-regret measures. uh, And they are also thinking about what will uh, the landscape look like in the future? What is my place in there? And and what do I need to do in terms of updated strategy? uh. So typically, no-regret measures are things like insourcing wherever you can, as long as it still makes sense uh, strategically and it basically reduces cost. Uh, to take out some some blue color work uh, to adapt to change rates those are sort of immediate measures yeah but the things that are really uh, looming behind the corner is what will the future industry structure look like so consolidation definitely is a topic that is going to happen yeah uh, it's the only way that you can compensate the scale you're losing uh, when the industry is contracting 30 to 50% and we will see a much more heavy restructuring uh, coming in the in the coming weeks or months Once people have sort of made up their minds what their new normal, what their new strategy is going to be and how they need to transform. That question is not quite such an easy question because a lot of key trends that have sort of shaped the future of the industry before the crisis are going to be affected by the crisis and Robert will run us through that.
2: So we've looked at seven of the key trends which were shaping the industry before the crisis And then try to analyse how each of these trends will be impacted by what's going on today. First of all, launch of next generation aircraft. There we see that as much less likely for the simple reason that Boeing hasn't got the money and Airbus doesn't need to. And therefore, we think it's much less likely that there will be new generation aircraft launched. The only thing that might change that is if the MAX doesn't get recertified But it seems like Boeing is heading towards that and recertification of flights planned already. So I think that's unlikely. And therefore, launch of next-gen aircraft seems to be on hold for the moment. Second, globalization of the footprint. We see that going into reverse compared to earlier years due to all of the talk of trade wars and tariffs. Third, on the race to capture the aftermarket, both Boeing and Airbus have talked a lot in recent years about their tensions to capture more of the revenue in the aftermarket, and particularly more of the value in the aftermarket. We think that those will continue, perhaps slightly abated, because both Boeing and Airbus will have had some exposure just to how fast the aftermarket can fall away in front of you once airlines stop flying. But we can't see any reason why they will not continue to chase after the aftermarket since... That's always where all the money is in the industry. As Manfred has just said, we see consolidation within the industry, continuing apace and being accelerated by the crisis. And as we talked last time when we had our colleague Jeff from Beijing on on the line as well, the Chinese see the current crisis as a great opportunity for them to catch up. Whilst there is this uh, lull in demand, they think it's a great time for them to get the C919 certified, to make progress on the C929 and therefore to catch up with both Airbus and Boeing and slowly, uh, slowly but inevitably to encroach into the market and make it a three-player market rather than a two-player market and obviously to take market share away from the big two established OEM. Next we see a continuing drive towards sustainability. Many large cities like London where I am today, the air air quality has improved dramatically during the lockdowns and I think people have become much more aware of environmental issues and we see more of a drive towards sustainability than was perhaps present beforehand. Both Airbus and Rolls have been very prominent in terms of the announcements they've made around sustainability and we see that continuing. And then finally, We also see more automation that tied into the absence of globalization or perhaps the reshoring of work, which had gone offshore to low cost regions. We see some of that work coming back, but going into automated facilities where labor is much smaller cost and that therefore driving more increase in automation. And with that, hand back to Manfred to talk about how companies are preparing.
3: Yeah, having said that, we we are seeing a very clear playbook emerge on how to deal with the crisis, and this is sort of based on observations we have with many companies and in, in the in the sector, and and you can look at this as a, as a three-phase kind of thread of action. Uh, first, and we're more or less done with that is what I would call immediate crisis management. Now, This is about ensuring that uh, all the hygiene and health measures are in place uh, so that people can go back to work safely. It's mainly ensuring also about making sure that no unnecessary spend is being, is being spent. Yeah? So spend compression is a key topic and then safeguarding of liquidity, uh, including uh, getting funds uh, from banks to ensure that you remain afloat. Yeah? And our analysis shows that companies have largely done that. Some which are in good state, others uh, which have had trouble, especially in terms of safeguarding liquidity and which might get in more trouble even after that. Yeah? But let's consider this phase more or less done. So all eyes are now set on what will the new normal be and how do I manage transition towards that? You know? And the key hinging point here is to define my own new normal strategy. You know? Now it becomes clear what the OEMs are going to do, which is basically a result of what the, what's happening in the airline market and the passenger and the freight markets. You know? So this is becoming clearer and clearer by the day now. Also starts to become clear how certain companies uh, will react. All these things need to be factored into... I would say company individual scenarios and a definition of where do I want to play tomorrow and what is my competitive advantage and where can I have a sustainable positioning. Yeah. So that's really the thing to think about right now uh, in order to also prepare 2021 and further. While you're doing that, there are those no regret measures which you can implement to, to reap immediate benefits, to keep also business afloat and to, to make sure, I would say, basic functions are running. Uh, and then once you have devised your, your new normal strategy, we will see the year 2021 really about implementing all of these method- measures, huh? most of all things like, uh, like consolidation, for example. Again, I would say the how to do it is, is becoming kind of clear. What is still clear is that this is an unprecedented crisis for the whole of the industry. Huh? And in the next section, we're going to look at how different countries have actually reacted towards that and to what the lessons learned could be for Canada.
1: Thank you, Manfred. This uh, sector has a unique part where it gets significantly influenced by government policy. Some sections, like military aerospace, are monopsonistic, which have only the government as a buyer. But even civil aerospace is, is extremely impacted by how governments perceive their own sector to be. So, over the next course of a few minutes, we'll look at how, what other countries are doing and what can Canada learn from it. We start with a fairly Grim situation. 40 years ago, we were number five aerospace defense country by ranking. Every decade, we slipped one rank. Now we are number nine. Post number nine, we've seen the kind of impact that COVID has created. And so countries are responding in different ways. And there will be reshuffling and further pressures on this ranking. If we do not do anything, and we are very, very vehemently saying this, and we would request the government to hear it. If we do not do anything, Canada will slip through the ranks unabated. We could fall out of top 10, most probably land up between 12th and 13th position. If we do enough, we will be able to barely retain our position. If we do enough and we are lucky, we could increase our position in this overall global industry rank. So if we do not take any action, that would tantamount to a willing loss of the global aerospace defense industry position. Now, if you look at the industry, that that was aerospace defense, but if you split it by aerospace and defense, the industry has typically got a three-layer structure. There are global powerhouses, which are U.S. and China, substantially ahead of the others. And then there is a bunch of people who or countries that Canada competes with, which include France, U.K., Russia, Germany, some emerging players like India, Japan. And then there are players that are just below this threshold, which are Spain and Singapore, for example. Israel would follow there as well. In terms of our aerospace ranking itself, we were ranked the number fifth largest aerospace player in the 1980s. So, and then every two decades, we lost some ranks. By 2000, we were still clinging on to that position. But what has happened in the last 10 years, and this also mirrors the point that Robert was making about the emergence of Chinese OEMs, the reemergence of Russia is an example. We are now the seventh largest aerospace industry. If you look at these pairs, all of them, regardless of who they are, have announced some or other COVID nineteen stimulus package, and that also counts for Canada. But let's look at what have they done for aerospace as a sector in terms of a specific support plan. They've announced some have announced amounts in some countries. There are discussions which are underway. We are. Manfred would talk about what we have tribute to in terms of Germany, and Robert would touch upon what we're seeing in the UK. There are other components of this plan where they're extending either weight support, state loan packages, investment funds for the sector, R&D funding. There is a change of payment terms, for example, which U.S. has done to accelerate money that can be with the sector. Acceleration of public orders seems to be done by a lot of players and tax relief. Now, what is becoming evident here is countries are seeing aerospace defense as a strategic sector and responding to that need. The question now becomes, does Canada see it as a strategic sector? And if it sees it as a strategic sector, does it place its money where the mouth is? Let's look at what the U.S. is doing. U.S. Has, is much larger, so we'll, we'll just go through it. But there are some benefits to size and scale, but they have to also support that position. They have had a large amount which there has been announced to the aviation industry in the form of grants and loans. It has, they have announced some assistance on restrictions and requirements on store buybacks, dividends, limits on employee compensation, etc. They have waived fuel and excise taxes. They have had an additional $17 billion that went into Business is critical to maintaining national security, which was primarily aimed at defense companies and military aerospace. They used some of the money to create defensive tools against adversarial capital and block foreign investments from countries which they were not comfortable with. And they progressed payment rates for defense items so that the industry had cash. In addition, they have decided to defer some payroll taxes And there is the employee retention tax credit scheme that has been announced. Of the overall piece, a large part has gone to supporting the passenger carriers, cargo carriers, airline contractors, etc. So they are supporting the aviation industry. They are also supporting the aerospace industry. We'll also look at China. China has tried to support the aviation industry by reducing the operating fees in terms of takeoff and landing, parking charges, airport air control fees. They have waived off the Civil Aviation Development Fund contribution, simplified procedures. They have announced investments in security, flight monitoring, satellite navigation. They have announced additional infra projects related to airports. And they have also placed an order of 100 aircraft on COMAC, which is their national air. Uh, aircraft, OEM. In addition, they have reduced VAT and they have announced a larger, a much larger investment in infrastructure projects through special purpose vehicles. I would request Manfred to take over what France is doing because that's a very interesting example.
3: Yeah, absolutely, uh, Rahul, uh, especially since France, I would say, is playing in the same league as Canada. I don't think you can really compare what's happening in Canada, France or any, any other of those uh, places what's happening in the US or China, because these countries have such a big internal market yeah, that it's not a wonder that a lot of measures are really centered around stabilizing airlines and thus triggering the self-healing power of the industry. Yeah. For France, it's not a surprise that you're seeing here the most comprehensive package in relative terms across all the countries. Yeah. Why? Aerospace and defense industry is, I would say, the industry in France it deploys around 300,000 people. It is high-tech. It, is a, it turns it around uh, 60 billion of sales on the civil side. And, and that's important. 60% of that actually goes into export. Yeah? And it is number one export industry next to luxury and food in France. So it's absolutely strategic, yeah? not only from, I would say, a military or political point of view, but also from an economic point of view. And that's, therefore, it's absolutely no surprise that the French are taking very comprehensive action. And this action is is not only built on supporting the local carrier, which makes up almost half of the 15 billion uh, euros, which are currently on the table. There is a dedicated plan actually to stabilize the aircraft manufacturing industry. And that plan hinges on a certain number of aspects. First of all, to ensure that the business can continue. So there's long-term unemployment support, which has actually been uh, prolonged again for the matter of this crisis. There's also an acceleration or support in terms of export uh, guarantees. Yeah. But most of all, they are addressing a number of key topics. One, how to make sure that companies do not run into an illiquidity, illiquidity situation. So there's a, a fund which has been created between the key industry players, the OEMs and super tier ones like Airbus, like Thales and like Dassault or Safon, which together with uh, the state, And a to be selected fund manager will put 500 million on the table, which is supposed to grow uh, up to 1 uh, 1 billion in the the, the coming month in order to help small and mid-sized companies with funds, funds meaning uh, equity or or debt. An additional fund has been uh, set up not to just take care of, uh, of making sure companies stay afloat, but actually to ask for modernization of the supply chain. Yeah. Meaning transformization topics like get more automation, get more, more digitization is what this fund is for. And last but not least, I would say the, the, the third direction of the action plan really is to safeguard France's engineering power. So the com- government is putting 1.5 billion in terms of research money on the table uh, to keep the engineering teams busy. And the government is acti- actively requesting the companies to accelerate carbon free uh, aircraft. carbon-free propulsion. So we're going to see a real push there. Last but not least, in in the short term, just to make sure that uh, that orders keep coming through, we are seeing that France is also accelerating purchase of military aircraft to the order of magnitude of almost a billion, which is really designed to help the industry in the very, very short term. So all in all, a very comprehensive plan. Clearly the leader in the pack, which can be explained by, I would say, the importance of the French industry but which is going to set a landmark in terms of this is going to be the reference if you want to remain competitive, referring back to the, to the, the slide that Rahul showed
2: earlier on. Yeah,
1: Robert, do you want to explain what the UK is doing?
2: Yes, I would have to say that the UK is lagging a bit behind France, uh, much as it pains me as an Englishman to say that. Although ADS, the local trade body, the aerospace defense and security trade body has five priorities, which it outlined at the end of May and which do share some similarities with the French plan. Those center around getting flights resuming as quickly as possible and a range of business support measures. The UK government has been very generous in terms of the broad-ranging business support measures it's allowed to all companies, regardless of sectors. First of all, subsidising workers who have been placed on furlough and who otherwise would have been laid off and made redundant. And then secondly, in terms of standing behind loans from commercial banks to businesses in order to keep businesses afloat. We've also begun to see the emergence of some specific measures for the Aerospace and Defense Association, and particularly the announcement last week by Grant Schatz, the Minister for Transport, about the establishment of the Jet Zero Council. Jet Zero is, is a bit of a play on net zero, and the idea of the Jet Zero Initiative is to sustain is to develop uh, sustainable technologies similar to the investments which the french have announced that manfred referred to in order to decarbonize aviation along with the announcement from the from grant Schaps, the minister there was also a commitment to invest in a sustainable aviation fluid fuels plant in order to try to stimulate the development of a supply chain for SAFs, sustainable fuels Recognising that one of the things that holds back the deployment of SAFs is the absence of a supply chain, second factor of course being cost. The investment from the government doesn't address the, the question of cost, but it certainly helps to stimulate the development of a supply chain. And as I said, UK is slowly getting its act together on this. ADS has been lobbying hard. CEO of ADS has been in to see the minister. And I hope that we will see further progress of in the UK in the weeks to come. With that, I would uh, hand back to Manfred to talk about Germany, which, again, has been, I think, a little bit more forward than the UK.
3: Well, let's uh, say at least that Germany is probably a very good example or comparable example of for, for Canada. Why is that so? First of all, like like Canada, uh, Germany is not dependent, like France, on the aerospace industry. There's many other industries they also need to look after. So I would say the relative position of the industry is not so big. Uh, secondly, the industry is quite fragmented and a lot of, I would say, small and mid-sized companies are actually making up the industry with only a few large tier ones and almost no OEMs, at least no exclusive German OEMs. Uh, so in that sense, a very similar structure. But where do I see the difference starting? Uh, so while there is no clear plan in place yet, uh, I think you can bank on one being put through fairly quickly. Yeah? There is a realization uh, of the German government that this industry is strategic and needs support. So there is currently a discussion going on on uh, putting even those small and mid-sized companies into what we call the Economic Stabilization Fund, which has been created specifically for, for COVID and for large enterprises and to in order to sh- ensure that those are being saved or stabilized by government money, either equity or debt money. Yeah. And it looks like there will be an exemption for small aerospace uh, companies to actually slip under this, uh, this fund. The fund is currently being authorized by the European Union, which is pretty sure to be happening. And once that has happened, there will be a number of pilots running from the aerospace defense industries. Those have been designated already to see how they, this fund can actually be administered for them. You no. Know? All these ideas are based on what you see on this slide here, which is basically an analysis that we have conducted for your sister association six weeks ago, where we asked ourselves the question what will be the impact of COVID on the ability to produce or to have to remain liquid or not of the industry? And what we have looked at is a sample, the long tail sample of the members of the associations. Some 120 companies, which all stand for like 6 billion euros of sales. So fairly small companies, as you, as you can see. Yeah? And what, we, what this really says is the cash need over time, depending on the scenarios you have seen earlier on. Yeah? So forget the dark blue curve, which is scenario one that doesn't exist anymore. Look at scenario two, light blue and the gray curve, scenario three. And it basically tells you that this industry in order not to go into insolvency on average will need between 1/4 to half the equivalent of its sales in terms of cash injection to remain afloat yeah so it's huge yeah and it's it it's, it's so big that it cannot uh, just be handled by the normal loan programs which have been set up uh, for all industry in Germany because the payback period uh, it would not be feasible yeah? hence the discussion on going into this overall equity-driven fund, uh, the Economic Stabilization Fund, and hence this, I would say, exemption for for small, mid-sized aerospace company to be able to do that, actually, since, as I said, this fund is normally for larger companies. Yeah? These pure financial measures are currently being accompanied, again, by another initiative by your sister's association, which you also support, which is about quality defining the new normal. Yeah. What should uh, the German aerospace blueprint look like after the crisis? uh, Taking into account all these things, you need to reduce 30 to 50 percent capacity. There's going to be a huge competition, not only in Germany, but globally. Where is Germany's right to play? So there's a, a dedicated exercise going on, which will serve the industry, the industry players, but which, of course, again, like these figures have been used to discuss with the government participation and stabilization fund the outcome will also be used to uh, work out with the government what will be the conditions of of companies to actually uh, participate in the, in the stabilization fund so we can expect uh, that there will be a lot of talk about uh, what is the reasonable amount or level of consolidation to happen what is the transformation necessary in terms of competencies to come out uh, stronger of, out of this crisis as, as a national supply chain than we went in uh, since uh, being a very fragmented, I would say, industry setup, the voice of Germany was never very
1: strong in aerospace and defense. Yeah. Now let's look at a couple of countries that are below Canada, but which are very aggressively catching up. India, for example, aerospace is never the, was never the kind of legacy that France had. It hardly employs 0.1% of the workforce. It hardly employs, it delivers 0.1% of the GDP but india took a decision that aerospace defense is a strategic sector and needs to be protected and grown and so they've the set of measures that came about from covid as uh, an outcome of covid included one banning imports for critical items below a certain threshold and saying we will manufacture it locally so india for indians the second was to say we are We are wanting to locally manufacture, and that demand will be met irrespective of the qualitative requirements of some product. So we'd be happy to compromise on performance, but we want it to be locally manufactured. They also said that we will increase the foreign direct investment limit from 49% to 74%, thereby make it more attractive for global aerospace industry to participate in the Indian aerospace ecosystem. To supplement that, we say on, on the civil aviation side, they said, we'll build new airports and we will modernize our existing airports. They've rationalized the tax structure in the MRO investments, because they're looking at this as a window of time where they can bring competitiveness and shift it to uh, India. And they've rationalized the use of airspace, which is needed for aviation industry to gain efficiencies. They've also worked the space business where they've said ISRO, which is the National Space Agency of India, is now open for private sector collaboration and the facilities of ISRO can be used by private entities. The other measures that they've offered to the sector include collateral free loans with 100% credit guarantees, payment options to defer payments of tax and protectionist measures against adversarial capital to ensure that only foreign direct investment from countries which are friendly to India's interests manages to find its way into the country. Robert, do you want to touch upon Singapore, which is a little lower on the overall ranking of the aerospace defense piece?
2: I think in the interest of time, very briefly on Singapore, to say that Singapore has obviously had a long-term plan and objective to develop an aerospace industry. First of all, the airline Singapore Airlines has been very successful and the government has put in place measures to support SQ at a time when it's been uh, very tough for them in particular. And then secondly, on manufacturing, Singapore has been uh, successful in attracting companies, first of all, Rolls-Royce to its Salita campus, and then other organisations like Collins and Pratt have also gone to Singapore too. And so we see Singapore as a very much uh, an emerging competitor. Identified aerospace as a high-value-added industry, and one in which Singapore intends to be very competitive in the future, and therefore will challenge Canada increasingly hard. Thanks. So that that leads us into a question as to what should Canada be
1: doing, and for that, we we looked at the situation at hand. We have global leadership, or let's say top-table rights in five categories. We have top-table rights in flight simulators, engines, aircraft assembly of a certain size, land systems, and space systems. We have deep competencies in value chain in aerospace engines, avionics, landing gear and structures. Now, the first question we asked is, will this provision of stimulus by other countries reduce competitiveness of Canadian Canadian enterprises? And the answer to that overwhelmingly in a lot of categories is yes. It's low in some categories where there isn't really an option available globally or where supply is constrained. The second question we asked is, if Canada was to offer a package, which is for aerospace defense, will it help in retaining and creating high-value jobs? And the answer there is overwhelmingly yes, across all categories. The last question we asked is, if aerospace defense is not looked at as a strategic sector, if we decide to say, whilst what we did for 80 years is great, but our priorities have moved, so let's move on. And we do not create a package that's needed for Canada. And as a result, other countries take over some of these competencies. How much time will it take for these competencies to be rebuilt? Um, a reasonably extensive modeling exercise tends to show that if we were to not do what we are expected to do, it will, we would be set back by anywhere between 10 to 20 years in most categories. Most categories actually being greater than 15 years, with only some where we would be able to recover some of the lost ground in less than 10 years. That's a dire situation where we are at. We have some focus on, the, whilst these are the sectors, then there are these trends that are defining the sector. Robert touched upon them in, in an earlier piece, which was around connectivity, digitization, automation. But also, Manfred touched upon them on market related trends, which are volatility, uncertainty, et cetera. But let's, let's look at specifically some of these trends and how these are expected to bring back competitiveness on the sector. So Robert, do you want to quickly spend some time on this slide? Because we are also running short on time.
2: Yes, briefly. This is a slide just showing gross emissions from a typical airline. Start off on 2019 with gross carbon emissions. We then obviously have a step down because of the reduction in flying activity for 2020. And if we then roll forward to 2050, we expect the industry to get back on a growth track. So we would expect total emissions in 2050 to be considerably higher than either 2019 or 2020. We then ask, well, what can we do about that? First of all, we can switch to new gen aircraft. Secondly, we can improve various of the systems, particularly air traffic control. And then thirdly, there are a set of revolutionary new technologies which could be developed in order to reduce emissions. Three broad areas. First, electrical propulsion, secondary hydrogen, and thirdly, sustainable aviation fuels, or SAFs. And these are the three different technologies which are getting a lot of interest at the moment, as they have the potential to reduce gross emissions considerably. And that would then leave us with perhaps comparable emissions or lower emissions in 2050, than what we're seeing in 2019. Anybody wants to talk more about these technologies, we have a wealth of more material to talk about on that front, but I'd leave it at that for now.
1: Yeah, so if you look at these, these are also technologies that find themselves in the agenda of all the countries that Canada is competing with. And so that leads us as to what should Canada consider in a package that it is trying to put in, in the context of what is the minimum which must, which are must-haves to incorporate right now, and what would be needed to build long-term competitiveness. The first is there has to be a sectoral roadmap and strategy for the sector. We found this for all countries that Canada is competing with. Canada seems to be the only country where there isn't a long-term sectoral roadmap and a strategy for the aerospace defense and space sector. The second piece is there has to be support to keep the aviation assets flying these assets in turn support MROs and keep the rest of the value chain alive. There will have to be a focus to ensure that weight subsidy programs are provided and extended to keep the sector afloat. There will have to be an approach towards creation of an investment-focused approach towards green technologies, electrical propulsion, carbon-neutral footprint, and other SAFs that were touched upon. I think this finds resonance in what France has proposed and what UK has been talking about, there would have to be an investment mechanism that finances the sector. And this has been done already by France and is on the anvil in Germany, as had touched upon. We would need to supplement this with advancing public procurement in sectors like defense and space and support it with preferential payment terms. We would need to also create investment mechanism that finances industry academia research and keeps some of these STEM skills alive. We also found that in, in, in most of the competitors that are doing. And last of all, a longstanding need is to immediately establish and approve the funding of the air network. In terms of long-term competitiveness, other measures that could be considered are, for example, taking the example of India, it could be Canada contracts for Canadian companies, and supplementing the Ease of operating in Canada by improving the ease of investments and capital and providing tax relief in some stress segments to the chain. All of this leads us back into that question. Does Canada consider this to be a strategic sector? And if so, it has to act now. So going back to the theme that Mike touched upon, yes, there was eight decades ago we've embarked on a journey, but I think we need to recommit to that journey with that, we are open to some questions because I think we're also out of time, but we're open to any questions that have come.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Rahul. Thank you, Manfred. And thank you, Robert. That was a very deep dive and we really appreciate your expertise. So if if you do have a little bit of time, I just, we have had questions here. So maybe very quickly, uh, I'll just go with a, a few here. So first off, you'd mentioned sustainability being slightly positive track. There is a 1.5 billion France that they are investing into the industry for this. Do you see a role for Canada with the government support in this uh, key area?
1: Yeah, we've outlined that as a theme. Manfred, do you want to add to that, please?
0: Yeah, so definitely there is an
3: opportunity. Yeah, and the trend is going the way that Robert was indicating. Yeah, if anything is not going to go away once COVID is gone, it's going to be the sustainability topic. And we rather think it's going to be accelerated. If you take the French example. They really have the need of keeping some thirty-five thousand engineers busy over the next years, especially since uh, Robert has also said uh, we we're not looking at new programs uh, that quickly. Yeah, so there is a I would say a, a government request. Guys in the industry get together, speed up, and we expect you to come out with a, a new program in the early '30s that is going to be revolutionary in terms of of carbon carbon emission. Yeah, so the least is to say it should be at least completely biofuel compatible. Yeah, But I would even expect something like a hybrid electric aircraft. Hybrid electric aircraft. This means new technologies need to be developed. Yeah, So that's a question that Canada can ask itself. Are there parts, especially in the propulsion sector, I should sort of invest or, or take my bets on yeah and that's the kind of soul searching that needs to be going on now yeah? but but definitely banking on carbon-free aviation is, is something which is a pretty safe bet
0: excellent thank you manfred another question here we see the major impact on the civil market i think was mentioned 30 50 percent contraction in certain sectors what will be the associated impact on defense and then will countries right shore on defense from your perspective
1: so we, we we had shared some perspective on defense in the last webinar, but the thematic there is, yes, there is an impact on defense market because there is supply chain commonality between defense and civil aerospace at some level. Two governments have delayed program spends, and there is a rightwards slippage of some programs. So defense industry is impacted, but it's not impacted as much as the civil aerospace business is impacted. So... But we're happy to provide more details on a one-to-one basis on this.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Rahul. Another question, how will the seven key trends affect size of aerospace workforce? As an example, how will increased automation and insourcing affect employment levels in future years?
1: It's a mixed bag, really, there. Some trends like investments in technologies, et cetera, are pushing up employment, but some others are going to impact employment negatively. So it, the employment effect has been studied on a trend-by-trend trend level. And so, again, happy to provide deeper views on this in a one-to-one discussion.
0: Thanks, Rule. Another one here. I'll just read it. It's crazy. We're the only country that has not identified aerospace as strategic. And from your perspective, why is the Canadian government not doing this? Why is there no plan?
1: Well, I would like to ask that question today to the Canadian government and say, why is Canada lagging behind? I could understand a little bit could be inertia, but I think the entire world has been jolted out of its inertia into some form of action on the sector. And we will have to keep pace. So we will have to push our agenda forward now. It's, we're late, but we're not too late.
0: Thank you. How do you see insourcing's impact on small business and sub-tier long-term viability, especially with a longer-term upturn?
1: Manfred, do you want to
3: yeah i mean here of course we're coming i would say to the heart of the discussion what we will be seeing is some kind of crowding out in the market and, and typically that starts with a smaller tier 2 tier 3 or even tier, tier 4. Yeah, if their customers basically in order to save themselves take back work it's going to hit them in the in the short term quite strongly what's going to happen in the long term is not quite clear because i mean they had outsourced that for good reason And just bringing it back uh, does not really solve long-term problems. So please expect all of your customers, OEMs, Tier 1s, Tier 2s, whatever level you are working at, currently going through the exercise, what is going to be my future make or buy? That kind of will sort of flow down from what is going to be my new normal and my new normal strategy. And in my future make or buy, who do I need in terms of suppliers? Who do do I not need? Uh, And those they will have identified that they need. You can expect that there will be some kind of support or at least cooperation, but this is probably not going to be true for all of them. So the only recommendation I can give is for each of you suppliers, do your homework, assess what uh, could be driving your customer, what will be the consequence for your business and, uh, and, and your company, and define your own new normal strategy based on that.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Manfred. And just another one for you. So I know you're working with Germany on a way forward. What are the two to three things you're seeing in Europe, Canada needs to do right now? Well, I think the real thing and that doesn't
3: concern Canada only is it's coming to grips with this new normal. Again, the world after COVID will not be the same as before. This is the only thing that clearly emerges now. Yeah. So the earlier you basically shape or, or, or draw out that, uh, that world that could be yours and you actively, I would say, uh, push for it, the better it is. If you don't do that, things will just
0: happen and they may just run over you. Excellent. Thank you. Another two questions here. Did you do any comparisons for Japan and Sweden? And then uh, assumptions, how do they change if a vaccine is developed?
1: Well, so there are two parts to that question. We'll address the second question first. We have factored in effect of a vaccine, but we believe it will still take between three to four years for it to be rolled out. It has not been very easy on that. So if if you look at smallpox, it took 150 years for it to be eradicated. So it's fair to say that it should take between three to four years for it to have reasonable spread. But that would be enough for competitiveness to shift in some measure within the aerospace value chain. Now, the first question, which is in Japan and Sweden, yes, we have looked at Japan in some form of numbers, but we've not looked at Sweden. I understand that question is from Alex. I'm happy to talk to him about it. Excellent.
0: Thank you. Paul. Again, air traffic rise in China, we saw that happen. Is that just because they're further along in the pandemic or is there measures that have been put in place and then maybe if you can comment on the ICAO rules that have been put in place, do you see if that's broadly accepted, if that'll help or not?
1: Sure. Manfred, do you want to look at
3: that? It's basically two factors. The most important one is they are ahead of the curve, uh, approximately three months. So if you looked at the, 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 the graphs that Robert was showing earlier on, you can more or less see it's uh, it's, it's being pushed due to three months to the right. If you look at Europe and if you look at the uh, U.S., the second factor, and that goes through uh, also for the U.S., is uh, a rather big national flight market. Yeah? And that's what picks up first. Yeah? So what really killed uh, Europe until, uh, I would say, today is uh, that all the borders within Europe were shut, while all the borders within China and U.S. had remained open all the time. So All those national reflights, uh, flights resumed earlier. So if there's no big, I would say, effect in terms of a second wave or so coming up, I think we can take those Chinese curves and more or less transpose them to Europe and to the U.S. Which means that during the summer we will start going up towards 40% again, yeah? and towards the end of the year we should be starting to reach, I would say, a vicinity of new normal, which would be somewhere at 70 to 90% of what uh, what we had before the crisis. Yeah? But there's probably going to be a structural part that does not come back either. For people fearing to travel, yeah, or, or just let's look at business travel. I mean, who can think that we will have the same structure and amount of business travel as before the crisis, now that all of us have seen how, how, how easy it is to do these, do these video conferences, you know, and uh, which CFO will actually uh, want to return to pre-COVID travel budgets.
0: Interesting. Thank you. I, I have two more questions. Do we have another couple of minutes? Is that, is that okay, Rahul? Sure enough. Yeah. Excellent. Actually, well, just I saw Tim asked a question, so I'll go to that one. Uh, given the opportunity that this global downturn represents for the Chinese aerospace sector to close the gap with key manufacturers in North America and Europe, do you see China focusing on sustainable aviation technologies with a view to surpassing such capabilities in the West?
3: I'm, I'm, I'm let me start on this one. I'm not sure this is going to be their first priority. Although, let's see uh, what's happening. Why am I saying this? I think China at this stage is considering uh, that this is an opportunity for them to catch up with their ongoing programs, the 919 and TR929, where effectively Airbus and Boeing are losing three to four years. They are effectively catching up. Yeah? First point. Second point, they can work on their ability to build a supply chain to ramp up production. Yeah? 30% of the single-isle market worldwide is China alone. So imagine China had a product to serve that market, Even if it's only good enough, like the C919, if China were able to deliver all those aircraft, it would immediately become par-level to Airbus and Boeing. So I think that's going to happen first. They will certainly look, as they have done in automotive, into alternative solutions. But I don't think that they will outrun the uh, the Europeans and the Americans, especially since those, as
0: we've seen earlier on, are starting to take their own measures. Excellent. Interesting. Thank you. Another question here regarding supply chain. Where do you see Canadian small businesses fitting into the new normal? For example, under 5 million in aerospace sales and commodity based products?
3: No one size fits all answer to that one. (laughs) Again, here everybody um, needs to do his or her homework. Do the analytics like, what's the risk that my customer doesn't need me anymore? That's a tough question to ask. Yeah. And what are the consequences if that is the case? Yeah. And how do I then have to reinvent myself?
0: That's good advice. Last last question here. And again, you've been the three of you have been more than generous in your time, and we thank you. So, what impact, talking about the state investments that we were talking about earlier, so what impact, if any, will these sorts of state investments have on future WTO anti-competition
1: rulings? Well, that's an open question today. The truth is any form of state investments will alter competitiveness, and that's what they're aimed at. But because everybody is doing it, it cannot be challenged very easily in the WTO right now, and I don't think that's a priority, at least for some time. Yes, if some of these investments become real competitive differentiators over time, countries will try to act in protecting their interests, including Exploring what rights they have to go back to WTO and site competitiveness or anti-competitiveness measures. So it's, it's, it's a question that I think will play out over time.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Manfred. Thank you, Rahul. And thank you, Robert. Like I said before, you've been more than generous in your time with us and also your expertise. And we very much value and appreciate the partnership AIC and our industry has with you and the amount of in-depth uh, research that you've brought to the table. I would encourage anyone on the line from industry, uh, please feel free to reach out to Roland Berger. We'll make sure that their contact information is distributed to everyone and also the presentation. So again, I want to thank you, all three of you, for being on the call. And again, thank the uh, the members for your support of AIC. And Again, feel free to reach out to either myself or anyone on the AIC team and we'll aim to support you in any way we can. So thank you again, Manfred, Rahul, and Robert. Have a good rest All of pleasure.
1: you. stay safe, take care. Pleasure, thank you so much, bye-bye.
0: That's a wrap for this episode, and thanks for listening. Please check out AIC.ca for more information, or if you would like to join AIC to be part of the conversation.